and welcome back to State of Mind with me, Grace Kingswell. As you can tell, I didn't change the name of the podcast, firstly because I couldn't come up with a good one, and secondly because I didn't want to risk messing up the RSS feed and other complicated things about podcasts that I don't really understand. So here we are. Today's episode is on the topic of CFS, also known as ME, i.e. chronic fatigue syndrome. I have the lovely Joe Foster on with me today. Joe is a nutritional therapist, surprise, surprise, but also a CFS survivor. She suffered with debilitating symptoms over a period of about seven years, but now lives a completely normal, healthy and happy and energetic life. We talk about what CFS actually is, how you get it, what the mechanisms are, and crucially, what to start thinking about in terms of treatment. You can heal from chronic fatigue syndrome, that much is certain, but it's wholly misunderstood and under-researched in our conventional health system. We also touch on long COVID briefly too, which may be of some interest to some of you. Find Jo on Instagram at healandbloom and via her website healandbloom.co.uk. Hope you enjoy the episode. And I am live with Joe, and today we're going to talk about CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, but first of all, I just wanted Joe to introduce herself and tell you a little bit about what she does and why this is such a key area of your clinical practice. Um, yeah, hi. <laughs> so I'm Joe. Uh, I'm a nutritional therapist, and I work exclusively with clients who have ME or chronic fatigue syndrome, um, and now long COVID as well. Um, and I was kind of drawn to this through my own experiences with ME, which I kind of became ill seven, eight years ago. And it's taken me that amount of time to kind of overcome it. But I have now 100% recovered. Um, and I just love to be able to kind of guide clients through that journey themselves now and hopefully get them there a bit quicker because I've got my experience and my help to get through that and the support to get through it. So it's, it's yeah, it's really rewarding work guiding people through that process. Yeah, I was going to say to, to clients when they come to you, do they realise it's going to take potentially years or do they think that, you know, in three months you'll be able to send them <laughs> on their way? Um, most people have a quite a realistic expectation, I think. Often people come to me having been ill for years um, and then, yeah, so we're kind of always thinking about maybe six months, a year. Um, but most people do seem to see improvements quite quickly once we mm. start to address some of the underlying issues. Yeah. Um, but it is, there's a process and it's, I have to look at every single element of their life to kind of work out what's going on and what's driving it. Um, but yeah, it's kind of a, it's a long drawn out thing, but it is, it is possible to get there and see improvements. So Joe, let's, let to begin with, let's talk about what ME actually is. Firstly, um firstly why are there two names why have we got CFS and why have we got ME and secondly you know what is it is it a discernible illness is it just a collection of symptoms is it purely just being tired because I think that what and you sort of touched on it a bit there and we'll go into this but the work you do is looking at, at the driving factor that's causing ultimately tiredness right so why mm. do I feel so tired all the time there must be a reason but I think well yeah okay I had another question but I'm <laughs> running away with myself what what is it Joe? what are we talking about here 
Um, so if we just touch on the name quickly, like we could probably have an hour conversation about the name and the controversies around that and everything like that. So I'm just going to keep it really simple where I tend to use the two terms interchangeably. The NHS in the UK will use chronic fatigue syndrome as their kind of diagnosis of this collection of symptoms. Um, mm. People within the community with the illness tend to prefer ME, myalgic encephalomyelitis, um, which refers to an inflammation of the brain and spinal cord. And they feel that reflects their symptoms more accurately than chronic fatigue syndrome, where it's so much more than fatigue. So it's Yeah, kind because of... it's, like it, it's like you're dumbing it down, isn't it? It's like, oh, you know, if you say to someone, uh, I'm not feeling my best today. I've got, you know, I've got chronic fatigue syndrome. The temptation is just to think, oh my goodness, this person is just using that as an excuse because they just they're tired all the time. Like it doesn't feel very, doesn't have much gravitas, does it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And you can have chronic fatigue associated with other conditions for so many different reasons, and it's quite easy for people to just to refer to CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, as chronic fatigue, which really irks lots of people that have it because there's so many so many more symptoms than than yeah. the fatigue that's associated with it so to get an NHS diagnosis you have uh, debilitating fatigue which does isn't linked to the fact that you I don't know, you just run a marathon and you feel tired afterwards it's more not linked to activity um, and it's not significantly improved by rest so you know you feel a bit worn out you have a rest for a few days you feel better it's not that mm. um and then there's kind of the hallmark symptom, which is called post-exertional malaise, which is you do a thing and you feel absolutely awful afterwards. So it's a mm. deterioration of all the symptoms after an event. And again, that's not running a marathon or doing a massive like work project or anything like that. It's day-to-day activities can bring on a significant increase in symptoms. And that can be hours afterwards, it can be days afterwards, and it can be really unpredictable. So it's quite difficult to live with. Um, mm. And then alongside that, you've got undisrupted sleep and cognitive issues like brain fog to get an NHS diagnosis. But then there's yeah. also a catalogue of symptoms that are also potentially in the mix as well. Mm. So a lot going on. <laughs> I have so much sympathy for people that have CFS because I had it for, I don't know how many years actually, because I never had a formal diagnosis, but in my job now I totally recognize that what I had was chronic Mm. fatigue syndrome I just didn't know Um, and it's unbelievably debilitating and then when you kind of start to come out the other side of it it's like I don't know I just for the last probably only for the last two years in my case two to three years maybe I've had days where I'm like I'm not gonna uh, you know I can I can function I'm not that tired and things like you mentioned like the brain fog and it's just so it is just I think it's one of the toughest things to understand because you know it's not like you've broken your leg and you're in pain mm. it's 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 so unta- intangible so yeah. my next question Joe is why do you think that it gets used as a sort of because I feel like it does gets used as a sort of scapegoat diagnosis, um, you know, i.e. we're not really sure what's wrong with you. Um, you probably just have CFS. Mm. There's no cure, deal with it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I think it's one of those things where those symptoms are so broad. They could be for so many different reasons. And perhaps conventional medicine isn't geared up to look at what's underlying that. So, mm. it's, again, it's this kind of label of, kind of to get those to get a CFS diagnosis it's a diagnosis of exclusion so they've run blood tests they've checked out anything they think could be behind it 
and then when everything comes back normal <laughs> in inverted commas yeah. um then it's like right well you've had these symptoms for used to be six months and now it's just changed to three months you get this label of cfs put on you and there's no treatment like there's nothing they can do so it's right off you go that that's it now expect to live the rest of your life like this often is what people are told I was certainly told that how demoralizing to hear that that there's you know from your primary caregiver that there's all there's nothing we can do we don't understand what are some of the key or common symptoms that you typically see as being related to CFS or driving um, that symptom picture Mm. So it's the fatigue is the number one thing people tend to come to me with. Um, and then the brain fog as well. So it's this kind of, you can't form words, you can't form sentences, you can't find information in your brain. Um, and then there's kind of pictures of being very sensitive to all sorts of things. So food sensitivities, light, sound, smells, chemicals. Um, and then we've got generalised kind of aches and pains. Um headaches migraines um just basically every single symptom you can think of it kind of comes up Mm. um and then underlying that is kind of often there's been some kind of viral trigger so the most common story I hear is I had glandular fever or I had a virus and then from that point on I never got well Mm. Um, and that's like the most common story I hear from my clients and other people I speak to in the community um, so there's a real viral component to it, a trigger to it. And again, obviously with long COVID, it's got a very similar symptom picture. And we can obviously pin that back to having COVID infection. But I'm always telling clients, like, that's the thing that we recognise as being the trigger for the illness. But actually, it's kind of often the straw that broke the camel's back. So like, what yeah. else was going on at that time? Can we kind of piece together this picture of what was happening for you? you know, years prior often to kind of bring you to the point where that virus that you got was the thing that kind of blew out of the water and has caused everything to crash. Um, yeah. So we're always kind of going backwards, often, you know, from the point they were born to now to work out like what has happened for you to mean that that happened because plenty of people get glandular fever, plenty of people got COVID and recovered. So what what is unique to you at that mm. time that kind of created that picture that's meant that it's lingered? Yeah, fascinating. And I think, you know, the the points to kind of mention there is that it can be something as simple as chronic stress over many years from your job, or it can be a relationship stressor. It doesn't have to be that you, you know, had like debilitating gut symptoms for 10 years prior to getting glandular fever at university and then Mm. never feeling the same again. Um, you know that and and that's where you come in and 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 the time that you spend with clients because obviously let's not forget that if you're going to a primary caregiver for advice on something like CFS they still only have sort of 10 minutes with you and actually mm. what you're saying is that finding the drive the driver and then being able to use that to work on some sort of discernible cure in inverted mm. commas you know i.e. treatment what are we going to do about it it takes you hours to kind of unravel that picture and go through the whole medical life history and, and symptom picture from when they were born to the current day. Um, mm. And that unfortunately is not what we have time for um, within our NHS system, which is fantastic. Don't get me wrong. But I think in something like CFS, you know, people just go, just go without answers, don't they? And, and it's really, yeah, really sad. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. It really is. Like, yeah, to have that, be able to put that together. And lots of people actually that come to me have done a lot of that work themselves. Like with hindsight, you can start to see this picture, but I think mm. you can be a little bit blinker. There's always things you miss when you're trying to put together your own health history. Like even if I put my own health history together, I would miss things that I don't consider significant because you kind of yeah. you don't see it. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's that big picture. So what was it for you, Joe? Because um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about your story. You know, how did it manifest for you? And then what was it that led you to finally sort of understanding what these underlying driving factors could be? Yeah, so for me, it was kind of a catalogue of things all at once, which it often is. So I did have a viral trigger. Um, I'd had plantar fever a few years previously and never felt like quite right from that point onwards. Um, I was highly stressed just got like promotion at work was really throwing myself into that um moved into a new house and had a load of mold in the house so within three months of moving in I was kind of bed bound <laughs> so mm. and looking back now that was a big trigger for me um and just kind of more underlying like nuancing so like a lot of the clients I work with and myself particularly like very like perfectionist like achiever kind of personality so basically always pushing yourself not listening to symptoms like very goal orientated kind of very anxious although I didn't know at the time that I was anxious because it was so normal to me I'd been like that from childhood I think mm. um but just like kind of ramped up nervous system constantly kind of being in that fight or flight state um and then just kind of everything kind of came crashing down with this virus that I got and kind of went from being very normal busy kind of 20 something to literally being in bed for at least two years and then kind of slowly came back from that afterwards so it's yeah and how did you um at, at this point in time presumably you what you mentioned you had a, a different job so you weren't a nutritional therapist but at some point you may you must have started looking into it and thinking about functional medicine and see did you seek out a practitioner um to help you with your journey yeah so I did a lot of kind of Try to do research where I could, but because my brain felt was so bad, I couldn't even read. So it was kind of like mm. I'm naturally very much like a researcher. Like I want to know what's going on. I want to understand things. So it's really difficult at that time to not have those kind of capabilities to be able to like throw myself into that. So um, I did what I could. Um, and I'd always been quite interested in nutrition and food, but more from a kind of like fatty diet kind of perspective. Like I was always yeah. doing like the latest like diet book that came out and all that sort of stuff. So I had that kind of interest, but then started to realize that what I was eating was having a huge impact on how I was feeling. Um so I had a load of like digestive symptoms and I think I lost like 10 kilograms in the first two months of being ill because I literally couldn't eat food. It was so awful like the symptoms I was getting from eating. So then I started to work out well, when I eat this, it's slightly better. So it's kind of like mm. doing it that way. And then I did start to work with a practitioner, worked with two or three nutritional therapists throughout my time being ill and kind of seeked out people that had had ME themselves and recovered. And that's kind of, yeah, it was, it was useful to go through that with them um, and then started to really understand what was going on as my kind of root causes for that. Mm. And for me personally, that was uh, my gut. My gut was kind of all over the place, had a really awful um, like imbalance of good and bad bacteria, parasites, pathogens, all sorts going on in there. Um, and then it was understanding my nervous system and how to rest and how to kind of calm down that fight or flight response and get into that healing state. Um, 
and then a lot of work around kind of I've got like estrogen symptoms so I did a lot of like stuff around how to kind of clear estrogen from the body better kind of calm down that inflammation that was going on for me um like every element of my life has been yeah. been kind of looked at and changed over the years um a lot yeah a lot around hormones a lot around stress hormones kind of understanding all that picture for me um detox methylation like the whole mm. the whole picture and um it's over years and so, and even now I kind of look at stuff and I'm like oh that makes more sense now and I kind of piece things together still even yeah. now um and I think you're always learning and always kind of exploring what's going on for you and how to keep fine-tuning things but mm. um yeah I've got to a point now where I feel completely well um and I know kind of what I need to keep me in that state so yeah <laughs> and can you share some of the testing that you did along the way because I think that's probably a very important part of a CFS journey, probably more so than, you know, something else. I'm just trying to think of something else I see clinically a lot, but where you can sort of get away with perhaps not doing functional testing and ruling things, ruling things out, working with diet, et cetera. But I think with something like chronic fatigue syndrome, as you were saying, it's so important to find the driver otherwise, or the drivers, plural, otherwise you can't start unraveling those and healing them. So you mentioned guts, obviously some comprehensive sort of stool testing or Mm -hmm. small intestine bacterial overgrowth, but you know, what did you find useful? And and if people are listening to this thinking, this kind of sounds like me, but you know, don't really know what to do about it. Where should they start? Mm, so I think like testing wise I've kind of done the wall I, lo- I love a functional <laughs> test <laughs> um, so I think most useful for me was doing um, stool tests um, to kind of see what was going on there um, uh, Dutch sort of hormone testing has been really useful for me um, and genetics like I think actually genetics was probably the light bulb moment for me in so many ways to understand why I am the way I am and what's Mm. going on so genetics to do with nervous system to do with kind of clearing stress hormones or sex hormones like for me they tend to hang around longer in the body um so what can I do kind of help that process um and get them out because if they're hanging around you're more likely to be anxious you're more likely to have hormonal imbalances because you're not just not letting them out of the body so to understand that sort of thing was really big for me um methylate I'm not going to go into methylation with you now but like understanding you have increased needs for certain nutrients to kind of these body processes so it's really important to go through that and understand precisely what I need because it's so different for every person Mm. um and detox like my my body is just geared up for not clearing things properly to not kind of processing things like I've got slow phase two as part of like liver detox which means that things just hanging around longer than they need to be so Mm. um understanding that was huge for me and has now kind of set me up for a real sustainable future because I know what nutrients I need what extra things I need in my diet or through supplements to kind of set me up for life really so that was kind of the the huge kind of like whoa moment for me yeah Um, and then what's the other question you had at the end of that oh I can't remember but I was gonna I was gonna oh well, as in where should people start because it's it was very daunting isn't it talking mm. about things like genetic testing but I think just quickly on that what's really useful to hear you say is that you know it's not 
you haven't failed if you discover that you need to stay on supplementation indefinitely. Um, You know, it's pretty common to be a a very bad methylator. Um, Yeah. And as Joe said, we probably won't go into what methylation is, but I'm, I'm the same. Mm. I am chronically (laughs) terrible at methylation. So, you know, I, in a similar way to you have an increased need for B vitamins in my diet for zinc, magnesium, um, and it's really, it's really okay that, you know, either I get those through diet and I have to be really militant about that, or you do just, you do just take a supplement and, you know, that's okay. It's not, it's not like you failed, you know, you're not, um, when you're sort of better, so to speak, it doesn't mean that you're going to not have to take, you know, a good quality multivitamin or something like that for a while. Um, I have clients that, sometimes say to me oh I feel like I'm I'm like rattling around you know because I'm taking so many supplements and I don't want to take them anymore and you know I think that genetic picture is really powerful isn't it mm, absolutely and um, I, so so where sorry Joe. so where would people where would people start then if I guess it's probably finding a practitioner <laughs> <laughs> yeah I think some things you can do by yourself I think those early things potentially although often people are so overwhelmed and so anxious and so kind of in need of that support that it can be a really great place to start because otherwise you can kind of float around for a year or two and still be where where you were so I think it can be really helpful to see a practitioner but I also appreciate that not everyone can do that so I think actually a lot of your ethos around like blood sugar balancing is where I often start with people like let's get the things in place that can be having a big impact on our energy levels throughout the day day-to-day stuff like mm. blood sugar is one of those main ones that we do so you know eggs and veg yeah <laughs> start with a savory breakfast make sure you're getting enough protein um just kind of anecdotally a lot of the people I work with I don't know if it is any people as a whole but often they have had a history of being vegetarian or vegan um and then... I well <laughs> I was gonna say the majority of my clients on their when they come to me the first session, they are under consuming protein. Mm. Um, and I, I just don't know why, like we're going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I just don't know why we're peddling this, this kind of ethos of sacrificing our own health um, for the greater good of the environment mm. and not consuming animal foods. When actually like there's, as we know, there's so much nuance to that conversation yeah. and it's not really the case. Um, And, you know, I think people, I don't know what it is, but maybe it's, maybe it's that awful food pyramid that we grow up with that puts kind of grains and cereals and carbohydrates as the, you know, what you need is the bulk of your diet, but it's like, it's round the wrong way. And so, so many people assume that you need less protein than you do. And that's Mm. why I did that story the other day about how many grams of protein do you think there's in one egg? Because Mm. Often people come to me and they say, oh, I've started, I've been doing eggs and veg and I feel really great. And I'm like, okay, great. So what are the sources of protein you're having throughout the day? It's like, oh, well, I just have my two eggs in the morning. Mm. That's not enough. It's not enough. And there's there's actually not that much protein in one egg. Um, I just, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why it is, but it's really, it's really alarming. And it's, Mm. it's such a quick win, isn't it? Yeah. Exactly. It can make a huge difference as well. Just to yeah. Feel, so. Why why is something like eating adequate amounts of protein really important, Joe, in, in healing from CFS? 
well, it's kind of, we need it for the building blocks of life, basically. <laughs> like we need it for every process um, and especially important in repair. And there's so much going on that's been damaged. Like if we're thinking about like our mitochondria, which are our energy producing part of our cells, like they get damaged when we've got a virus or things like that going on. And then to repair that damage, we need protein. Mm. Um, we need protein for our liver. So detoxing, um, Often people are poor detoxers as well and have got ME. So we're thinking, like, what can we do to support that process? And we need B vitamins, we need our protein, we need our magnesium. Um, so it's it's so vital for every single thing that the body needs to be doing to repair from illness. And when you haven't got it there, like, it can be miraculous. I put more protein in people's diets and they suddenly, like, they feel well for, like, the first time in years. And it's such, mm. it sounds so simple, but actually... Sometimes you do need a bit of guidance on how how to do that and what does a high protein breakfast look like? People can look to your work for that, but then how can we get protein like throughout the day? Like you say, like I often give people a list of just. I mean, people go and Google it now. What does twenty grams of protein look like for you know a serving of chicken or some beans? So like if you've got you've got like a palm size of chicken or you've got two hundred fifty grams of beans to get that amount of protein and people will be having like oh a chickpea curry or whatever and it's a tin of chickpeas and they're having that over four you know four servings and it's just not enough like if you're going to beans or lentils like fine you can do that but just make sure you're getting getting enough and it's it's yeah. it's a huge amount to kind of be equivalent to an animal an animal product mm. and also I think as you were saying the gut tends to be a big focus for well everyone but especially if it especially in CFS because it's it's so easily affected isn't it that balance between that those sort of friendly bacteria and the, the more opportunistic strains and you know things like chronic stress and mitochondrial damage and everything that you're dealing with with CFS anyway will affect the gut in some capacity mm. and when the gut does become compromised all of a sudden it's like oh I eat chickpeas and I I bloat and I feel terrible and awful mm. um and that doesn't happen if you're eating a piece of salmon or beef or chicken or something or an egg or something Mm. so it's um yeah I think from that point of view as well it's it's equally as important um you mentioned you mentioned long covid and um symptomatically quite similar Mm -hmm. now with something like long covid you you would as you said you would know already what that what was the you know the, the incidents where you've sort of never been the same since um, it was getting COVID. So is that some, is it somewhat sort of easier to manage or is it exactly the same process? Um, it's somewhat easier sometimes in that the length of time someone has been ill is usually less before they kind of seek out help. So mm-hmm. um, so less damage has been done or, or they, they've got more <laughs> mental resilience and resolve <laughs> to kind of, they're not at wit's end just yet. Uh, I think, I think maybe it's kind of those processes that have gone awry have had less time to kind of bed in so if I'm working with someone who's been ill for you know sometimes 15 years or so and they've had these symptoms that was quite different the approach I would take to someone who'd come to me you know had COVID last year and then they're kind of still struggling to recover but the underlying mechanisms are, the, are pretty much the same mm. um there are some differences but the kind of the irony is that it's only through all the money that's been thrown into research for long COVID recently that we kind of are picking up things like these microplots that people might have heard about. Um, it's kind of like research picking up these things, and then but then we don't know because 
ME research has been so underfunded for like years and years and years. So we don't know if that picture is the same in, in ME people, that the symptoms are almost the same. Uh, the mechanisms behind it are almost the same. Um, there's some differences in that. Like, so if you've had long COVID, you're more prone to maybe like breathlessness if it has been some kind of lung damage and things mm. like that. But um, underlying, I think, is kind of the same. It's just another name given to the same collection of symptoms that, that medicine doesn't really completely understand yet. Like we don't know the cause. We don't know what the treatment is. Um, yeah but we can kind of look at it in a different way and see well, what's driving it and what, yeah. what's behind that and how can we address those things to kind of see results from, from the symptoms. And do people get put on, so, so say you have someone that has had a diagnosis, are there pharmaceuticals that they would have been put on? I'm just thinking, you know, in my clinical experience, antidepressants are a big one because when you have CFS and you're chronically tired and you know, you have all these collection of symptoms that we've talked about. You quite often have depression as well um, mm. because the, your everyday task and life just feels insurmountable. Is there anything else that people, like, how is it, is it medically managed or is there anything in place to support people through the kind of conventional systems? Not really. So it's more like symptom management. So someone, they might, if you've got significant pain, there might be some, some pain medications going in there. Um, anxiety medications or depression antidepressants um, are the most common ones but often people aren't on those um, mm. it just kind of it really depends I think absolutely depression and anxiety come alongside illnesses like this and you can absolutely see why they would be because it's completely life-altering and mm -hmm. anxiety inducing but also I think it's really important to distinguish between like a depressive fatigue is very different to a a chronic fatigue syndrome fatigue because when you've got so like kind of like lifelessness in bed like can't kind of function can't get up that kind of depressive kind of fatigue people with me very much are lying there like thinking of all the wonderful things they want to do like they're desperate to be able to do those things right yeah. and then it's just not physically having the energy to do them so there's kind of differences between the two and you can have both or you can have one or the other. And I think it's kind of understanding that and where someone is. And I think you can fluctuate between the two. Like I certainly had kind of more mental health things when I was, if I had like a big crash or became really frustrated with what was going on for me, then yeah, it can kind of slide more towards that. And it can be like, well, what's the point of even trying to get well because it's so felt like such an uphill battle, but mm. I'd say generally I was more on the kind of just waiting for things to get better, like keeping that hope and keep going and waiting for things to improve. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think a big, um, a big takeaway from this is that I try and kind of get this across to my really chronically um, unwell clients is that the body does want to heal. Mm. Like it's not working against you. It's about, you've just got to sort of allow that process to happen. And, and if you're someone you know, like we were talking about these sort of type A personalities that typically are sort of more highly strung, a bit more anxious, really driven, really kind of goal orientated. That can be really hard because it, as you have talked about with your journey, involves a lot of, you know, not doing much. Um, mm. You know, for me personally, the biggest thing was realizing how much rest I needed, how much I needed to do absolutely nothing for quite a long time mm. um, to really fully understand what it meant to be, you know, like 
nourishing my body and calming my stress response down and doing all of the things and you know taking all of that time and taking all of that rest can feel quite daunting I think because it's like you just want to start something now and you want a (laughs) protocol and supplements that are going to make you feel better and a lot of it is like you said if you've been ill for 15 years it's not going to happen overnight Mm. yeah yeah I totally resonate with that as well it's so hard like when you're whole being is like into just throwing yourself into things like pushing yourself in every way um rest can be really difficult and also it's a lot I just certainly noticed it with myself but a lot of the clients I work with as well like recovery becomes the next thing you're going to achieve that and right. to have awareness of that and realize actually the stress that is behind that that pressure mm-hmm. to get well like it's literally a life or death situation and yeah. you're pushing yourself to be like right I need to get well now and I'm going to do everything I can I'm going to be researching for hours a day of what could be helping and scrolling mm-hmm. Instagram and seeing what's the latest thing that I could be doing or I'm not doing enough it's just this kind of endless mental kind of conversation about do more, keep going, push more, and actually kind of unraveling that and realizing what sits behind that is is a big part of what I do with clients. I do loads of mindset work um, to kind of work out what's going on there and how can we kind of come from more of a place of acceptance and Mm. kind of surrender to what's going on. And that's not giving up. That's just realizing where you are right now and and what do we need to gently and slowly do to get you to a point where you feel better, but removing all that stress and all that pressure um, from the process? Yeah. And just touching on your kind of clinical work then and, and how what the process looks like, um, you know, obviously nutritional therapy is expensive. Functional tests are really expensive. And, you know, we need to be honest about that and frank about that, that sometimes we will have clients that, you know, they can afford potentially our consultation fee but the functional tests are just Mm. above and beyond where do you so you mentioned that there are you know real quick wins and basics that you kind of do with everyone is that where you go to first or do you kind of dive in and say that we really need to do a stool test here or I you know we need to do like a toxic element um, panel if you think they might have like a heavy metal issue Mm. or something like that um and let's talk a little bit about what those kind of basics are. I know you mentioned blood sugar, but I'm sure there's others that people can kind of think about and implement into their lives. Yeah, so it, it's different for every single person, which is kind of the beauty of it, but it kind of makes it hard to sum up what, what I do. But um, most often the first place we'll start is looking at food. So I get clients to do a food diary the whole time we're working together um and they record what they're eating um, and we kind of look at that each week and I meet with my clients weekly which um is slightly different to some other some other ways of working but for me it works really well because we can implement those things step by step and really slowly so Mm. one we meet one week we're talking about breakfast next week's like right let's add to that what can we do at lunch next week what can we do for dinner like snacks drinks those sort of things are probably most often where I start first um Mm -hmm. some clients come to me and they've been ill for a long time and they've done a lot of work they've worked with other practitioners before their diet is pretty much spot on really so there's 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 always things we can add and that's always my ethos like what can we add to this to make make Mm. this better I'm not really about restrictive diets and things um but yeah so that's where we'll start usually um and then some clients come to me with an idea of tests they want to do already and I might or I might suggest some um it just really depends on what what their health history has been like so most commonly I'll do a stool test 
Um, I might I'll always look through past GP tests and see see what the NHS has done and if there's any glaringly obvious things that perhaps are a little bit below optimum but we'll work with that and request some more new ones nearly always do like a thyroid test um, with vitamin D B12 just to see if there's kind of any underlying issues there that could be causing or contributing to fatigue um, mm. and then once we've worked together for a bit we'll see how those kind of things settle and then we kind of think about supplements probably after a few weeks we'll think about supplements together and often people come to me and they're on a catalog of things already yeah um, so it's kind of working out some clients we take them off everything because they're fed up with taking them all and they've got no idea what's working and what's not so mm. we'll just take everything out and then slowly start building things back up again and seeing if we can notice the difference or see see how things are going um and then further down the line might think about organic acids tests which is can give us a bit of an insight about oxidative stress mitochondrial dysfunction um and other some toxins and things like that or genetic testing is that kind of but I'm, I'm not someone who's like right you have to do all these tests before you work with me because I want to get the full picture I appreciate that that's not possible for people and mm. it's always kind of what assumptions can we make from the symptoms that you're presenting with um and let's have a go and it is a little bit more trial and error but you can get results that way too yeah um I certainly see it in clinic that yeah let's make assumptions about what's going on in your gut if you can't afford a gut test and we put in some protocols to support that and then see how you feel and yeah you know best like your body you know what's best in your body so we can kind of work on their experiences and do a lot of work around how to kind of reconnect with your body and how to understand symptoms and really kind of tune into what's going on for you and how and how you feel when we do these kind of interventions mm. And I think finally, I'd love to know what your um, pearls of wisdom would be for something like, you know, you were saying how important it is to really understand how to downregulate, how to support your nervous system, how to kind of work those or understand that, you know, that stress picture um, and those hormones in the body. Um, listen this, listeners of this podcast will know a lot about blood sugar regulation already, but I'd love for you to tell us you know, what do you use clinically? What suggestions are you giving clients? Um, you know, is it to, to sort of help them in that area? Is it things like, you know, vagus nerve stimulation? Is it, you know, time in nature? You know, what are your go-tos for helping people to understand how best to take a load off, really? Yeah, it kind of it varies again between who I'm working with and like what their interests are and what they're kind of drawn to. But I'll give them a big list of things and they can kind of pick what resonates with them but we're always thinking about what rest and rest is not slobbing in front of the telly like watching endless Netflix like it's proper rest so it's you know meditation it's listening to a very gentle audio book it's you know eyes closed not falling asleep just you know completely sedentary um but yeah meditation some breath work I like EFT tapping I recommend that a lot to clients to kind of it's a method of using acupressure points on the body um and talking through emotions and it can really help kind of process what's going on for you um so I usually recommend the tapping solution app for that and clients can do that in their own time um and then it's kind of, yeah, Vegas exercises. So we're talking about, but I like to bring joy into things. So I don't want to give people a list of things that they feel that they have to do each day. And it's like, oh, I should do my meditation today, you know? Mm. So it's how can we bring joy into these things? So if they're like singing, it's let's get you singing really loudly, like humming really loudly. 
Um, and that all stimulates a vagus nerve, but also is, you know, it's a fun thing to do. Like, yeah. can you bring some movement that feels gentle, like dancing around the, if you've got the energy for it, let's dance around the kitchen. Let's kind of watch funny things on telly. Let's meet with community. Let's, you know, laugh with friends can be as beneficial as, you know, doing meditation if you don't really fancy mm. it. It's kind mm. of what can we do that makes it enjoyable and fun for you? whilst yeah. also getting those benefits and I'm a big advocate for getting out in nature but when you're feeling so fatigued like you just can't do it so it's how can you bring that into your life a little bit more so I'm always showing on Instagram like I'm out in nature all the time and like the reason I share that is because I used to be in the house not able to leave and to see those kind of things was really important for me so I'm always sharing like when I'm out and about what I'm doing what bits of countryside look like that sort of thing but you can get the same benefits almost the same benefits from watching I don't know wildlife documentaries at home watching YouTube videos of people out and about in those kind of places like Mm. the body has the same response it's not quite as strong but as if you were in that in that environment yourself so kind of interesting yeah yeah can you sit and watch like an hour you know a slow video of someone walking through a forest or something like that rather than an hour of (laughs) Which is probably going to feel, (laughs) yeah, that's probably going to feel really hard to that type A personality that always wants to be doing, doing, Mm. doing. Um, And it's funny because I, I often think in clinical practice, it's the people that, it's the people that are most, what was it? The people that are most resistant to thing, to, to something are the ones that need that thing the most. Mm. So it's like the people that you get a sense don't really slow down they're the ones that you somehow need to convince them that they need to do absolutely sod all and it's really hard it's really hard um and it's crazy isn't it having you know the job that we both do is so much more than just like eggs and veg and often (laughs) often like I feel like I need to do a further qualification to have some sort of like therapy understanding or some like emotional yeah. work where you're you've got you know you've got those tools to be able to work with people on that level as well because so many people need it yeah. and it's so connected as you said to what you're doing in terms of physical healing yeah. um yeah really fascinating subject though and I think you know to round up the the key takeaway here is that it's you know it's much it's much of the same that we talk about all the time on this podcast you know CFS is not it's not it's not really different in any way from all of the other chronic conditions or things that we discuss on here because as you've explained you know everything is interconnected and that's why you know doing something like changing what people are having for breakfast is actually part of a healing journey for something that is as chronic and as debilitating as CFS um okay so any key takeaways from you like little points that you feel like you'd like people to know or reassurances if they're listening to this thinking like that sounds like a bit of me maybe not to such an extent but like I do feel tired all the time you know what should I where should I start what should I do or just anything that we haven't touched on that you want to raise um just I think one of the things that I've come up against quite a lot is that people don't think you can recover from chronic fatigue syndrome um so my message is all about that you can like it is possible Mm. and there's kind of this weird undercurrent within the community it's like well if they've recovered like they can't have actually had it like they can't have been as ill as I am or whatever Oh, really um which you don't get with other conditions I don't think I mean not as involved in other communities of illnesses so I wouldn't know completely but there's yeah there's this kind of strange 
saying about if you've recovered, then you haven't been as ill or you mm. haven't had it properly, properly, mm. <laughs> inverted commas. Um, so I just want to kind of put the message out there that it is completely possible to recover from these, this condition, especially if you're addressing the root causes of what's going on for you. And I think that's that's where your your focus needs to lie to get to get well is addressing those root causes. But then it is, yeah, you're thinking about nervous system and you kind of have to look at your whole life to get there so the way you live like your mindset everything that is going on for you but when you address all of those things you you will you can do it it is possible like I'm not anything special <laughs> like it it can happen for other people too it's I'm not some kind of enigma other people I know have recovered it is it's completely possible mm. um it might take a bit of time but you can you can get there and there is yeah. hope and it can feel like you'll never get there but you you can like you can get over this so that's kind of amazing yeah I did just something else just popped into my mind I'm going to ask mm. you really quickly even though that was a lovely sentiment to end on um <laughs> you know you met you mentioned that quite often it has a viral trigger something like glandular fever which loads of us have had have mm. had I had at university um the the common you know with something like glandular fever you know you know that these viruses lay dormant in, in the body. It's not like you kind of get rid of them. They're sort of there. So if that is your trigger, if it is a viral trigger, what are you doing to work on that underlying viral load, for example? Mm. So again, that will look different for each person, but there's kind of, there is antiviral protocols that I'll use. Um, there's some supplements if we think it is still reactivating, but it's working out what triggers that reactivation yeah. as well. Like most commonly is stress. So, you know, people kind of come to me and they're, they've had glandular fever and then at times when they've got a big thing at work or at uni, whatever it is, like it mm. comes back again. So it's, when is it well, not ever stressed with anything yeah. though? Like <laughs> even something like, even like cystitis or thrush that, that women suffer from. And I have loads of clients that they know as soon as they get stressed, they get cystitis or as yeah. soon as they get stressed, they get really bad bloating, even if we've worked on the gut and we know that everything's looking really good in there. Mm. And that purely is because stress changes your immune response so you're less protected your yeah. body is less able to keep that glandular fever virus in its box yeah. um, and when you have got um, glandular fever you know that viral load will be there and the immune system works 24 7 to keep it in its, its box but then as soon as you add like lack of sleep poor diet stress all of these lifestyle factors mm. into the mix then the box opens I mean, yeah it's probably the easiest way to describe it isn't it <laughs> yeah and I think you can't live a life where there is no stress so mm. these things come up all the time but it's how can we get you as resilient as possible to those you know everyday life stresses how can yeah. we remove some of that pressure that you put on yourself some mm. of that kind of pushing and all those sort of things like how can we alleviate that and how can we make you yeah as resilient through kind of having these practices day-to-day -day mm. stuff like meditation or breath work or whatever it is to get you to that point where those kind of knocks aren't as significant yeah I love that as a as an idea to end with resilience yeah I think we all need a bit more of that in our modern day lives don't we <laughs> absolutely <laughs> um so Joe, where can people find you and engage with you on socials and other places um yeah so my website is www.healandbloom.co.uk um instagram is at healandbloom um, those are probably the best places to find me. Just send me a message on Instagram if you want to have a chat. I'm very open to messages and things. So. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for being a guest. This has been fascinating and I hope really helpful for lots of people that are listening. Mm -hmm. Thank you for having me. Mm -hmm.
thanks again for tuning into the podcast. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Joe. If you did, go and leave a review on the Apple Podcast app if you haven't done so already. And I will see you next time for another episode. Bye bye.